Go ahead and open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 14, uh, and then flip over uh, a couple of books behind to Ezekiel chapter 28. Put a mark there. We're going to start in Isaiah, and then we're going to spend some time in Ezekiel as we go into part two of our series on worship called Love Expressed. I really believe that's the definition of worship, is that it is our love for God expressed. I did an internship, many of you know about, at a youth ministry called 180 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And as I interned out there and really got the ministry training that, that God used to prepare me to, to serve here, one of the things that they taught us, one of the things that we did uh, is every service we wrapped around one idea. We wrapped around one sentence, one phrase, like everything, worship, uh, everything we communicated the message was going to point to this one statement, and we called it a take-home point. What did we want our students to take home from that service? And that could be something as simple as God loves you. That could be something challenging like the forgiven, forgive. It could be some sort of a statement that they're going to hold on to, that they're going to remember. And so we try to do many of those same things here at City Church. And Kid City, which by the way, Kid City, if you serve in Kid City, just a quick reminder, we've got a, a great training meeting for you after service. We've got Lenny's coming in for free lunch. So if you're a part of Kid City, uh, man, hang out with us afterwards. But in Kid City, we have this thing that, that we call the bottom line. Uh, and the bottom line is just like we, we call it 180, the take-home point. But I like that phrase, the bottom line, for it because the bottom line can apply in different areas of our life. I believe that every service should have a bottom line. I believe that every ministry should have a bottom line. I believe that every church should have a bottom line. Here at City Church, our bottom line is this. We believe that we are called to reach the world by reaching one. That's our bottom line. We, we see a vision of reaching hundreds and one day even thousands of people for the glory of God. But the essence of that, the way that that happens is by reaching the one that God sets in front of us. Happens by one salvation, by one child who's ministered to, by one diaper that's changed, by one family that's reached, by one need that's met, by one person who is clothed, by one Christ follower who gets baptized, by one person who crosses over from death to life. So we have a vision to reach our world by reaching one. And so this vision is massive. It's huge. It's so much bigger than anything we can accomplish or you can accomplish or I can accomplish on our own without the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's also very small. It's also very detailed, very specific. Whoever God sets in front of us, whoever God gives us the opportunity to connect with, whoever God places in our world, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, in our neighborhoods, that's the one that he's called us to reach at this point in time. That's our bottom line. It's our greatest desire. Have you ever wondered what God's greatest desire is, what God's bottom line is? Have you ever asked, what is it that God is all about? What is the most important thing to him? Why does all this stuff even exist? I think it's a huge question. I think it's a fantastic question. I think it's a question we need to wrestle with and come back next Sunday, and we're going to answer that very question. We're going to look into it. But today we're going to look at the flip side of that coin. We're not going to ask, what is God's bottom line? What is God's greatest desire? We're going to ask the question, what is Satan's? greatest desire? What is the bottom line for him? What does he exist to try and accomplish? What is he trying to do in your life and in my life? What is he trying to do on planet earth? What is he after? Because he's trying to stop me. He's trying to stop you. He's fighting against us. He's resisting us. He does not want us to have favor. He does not want us to win. And so what is he trying to do to, to make that happen? Uh, today's message is called Satan's Greatest Desire. 
And this is going to help us to understand this cosmic spiritual warfare that we're all a part of, this great battle that we're all involved in that, that you may or may not be aware of, but that all of us participate in. So we're actually going to answer three questions this morning. If you're taking notes, here's your first question. What was Satan's greatest desire? What was Satan's greatest desire? And we're going to spend most of our time here to kind of build a foundation of an understanding of who Satan is, where does he come from, and how did he get to be the way that he is. Now, many of you know, originally Satan was an angel in heaven. So when I say what was his desire, I mean before he fell, before he was cast out of heaven, before he was sent down to earth, before the earth was even created and and mankind was formed, what was his desire way back then? Most theologians believe that the universe had actually been created, that it, was, that it was formed, but that it was void, and that Satan was cast out of heaven and, and sent to earth, and earth was actually the, the penal colony. It was the place that he was sent uh, to suffer to, because there was no form on earth. In fact, the, the spirit covered the earth like the waters covered the deep. The whole earth was covered in water, and so there was no place of rest. It was a place of eternal restlessness for, for Lucifer and the rest of the fallen angels. And then God decides to, to create us. And so God comes down into this nothingness, into this void, and he begins to create. He begins to form something out of the void. He spoke into the confusion. So Isaiah 14 tells us kind of what Satan's desire was while he was still in heaven, before this happened, before God made us. As we read this passage, I want you to pick up on five I will statements that Satan makes, that Lucifer makes here. It's going to blow your mind as you read it because you're going to notice a very common theme. Every one of these statements revolves around this same idea of going up, of being lifted up, of being high. We're going to discover Satan's greatest desire right here, starting Isaiah 14, verse 12. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. Many translations actually translate that word morning star as Lucifer. That's actually where that name comes from. Son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Then he says this. He says, you said in your heart, I will. Everybody say, I will. I will ascend to heaven. Then he says, I will. A couple of you got it. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. So he wants to go up above even the stars of God. And then he says, I will. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. And then he says, I will. Watch this. I will ascend, going up, above, going up, the tops of the clouds. Again and again and again in these statements, it's up, it's elevation, it's being exalted, it's being lifted high. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. And then finally, he just sums it up. He comes out and says it. He says, I will, I will make myself like the most high. And isn't it interesting, of all names that he could use for God, of all the terms, of all the titles that we have for God, which one does he choose to use? He doesn't say, I will make myself like the Lord. I will make myself like the healer. I will make myself like the redeemer. I will make myself like God. He says, I will make myself like the most high. You see, very clearly, Satan's desire is to be lifted up, is to be worshipped, is to be above all of creation. Now watch God's response in verse 15. It says, but you are brought down 
to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So Satan's desire was responded to with the exact opposite of what he wanted. He was cast down, he was brought down to the depths of the pit, and ultimately his eternity lies in hell. And a lot of times we think that hell is this place of eternal torment where Satan is going to be tormenting us, but he's actually going to be tormented right along with us. He's not going to be doing the tormenting. Hell was actually created as the place for Satan to pay the price for his sins. It is most specifically a place for him. Now there are people, there are mankind who are going to be there as well. But it's a place for him to suffer, for him to be punished. Uh, But it's very clear that he wants to be lifted up. He wants to be exalted onto the mountain. He wants to be like God. He wants to be worshipped. Here's the bad news. This is the nature that we're all born with. All of us are born with the same nature. See, a lot of times theologians would teach us that we're born with what we would call Adamic nature. We are like Adam, and that's absolutely true. Romans teaches us how we are all descendants of Adam, and because of Adam, we inherited his sin. But Adam is not actually the original sinner. Eve is not the original sinner. The original sinner is Satan. He's the first one who ever sinned. He's the first one who ever rebelled against God. And so when we are born with that sin nature, we are born with not just an Adamic nature, we're truly born with a satanic nature. And here's what I mean by that. That nature is this. It's, look at me. I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I want people to appreciate who I am. I want to be lifted up. I want people to pay attention to me. Our favorite person before we come to Christ is ourselves. Our life revolves around us, all of us are that way, you and I. And there's a residue of that still in our lives. There, there's an imprint of that that carries out even after we receive Christ. And I'll prove it to you. If we had service being filmed today, and we could put up on the screens for you uh, a picture of the crowd, who's the first person you'd look for? Yourself, right? If you go home today, you go out to lunch after church, you hang out with some people, you go home and somebody else posts a picture from lunch. You get on and you see, you don't look that great in that picture. It's a bad picture. It doesn't matter who else is in that picture. It doesn't matter how great everyone else looks. If you look bad, it's a bad picture, right? I had some bad pictures of me posted on Facebook this week. I understand. I identify with this feeling, okay? All of us have this nature. We want to look good. We want to be appreciated. We want people to notice how great we are. And it's just like Lucifer. But it's not like Jesus. If you go back and you study Christ and you look at his life, you notice two things that he's always doing. He's always pointing attention to the Father, and he's always pointing attention to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is always deflecting the attention, the worship, the focus off of himself to his father. He's always talking about, man, I was sent from the father. I only do the will of my father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I'm just a reflection of my father. Or he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will comfort you. He's always deflecting the attention off of him. And it's not just Jesus. The Holy Spirit lifts to lift up. Jesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Father himself, the the Most High himself, exists to exalt 
Jesus. He's lifting up Jesus. He's glorifying the Son. If we could listen into one of their conversations, it would be like this. You're so wonderful. No, you're so amazing. No, you're great. No, you're the best. No, you're wonderful. And we might think that that's disgusting. And if we do, that's our sin nature. Because that's the Creator. That's the image that we were made in. Before we ever inherited the sin nature, we inherited His image. That's who we were created to be like. And we're never more like Jesus than when we are deflecting the attention from ourselves and putting it on God, putting it on others. That's who we're created to be. We're designed to worship. So Satan's desire is to take that worship, is to see himself exalted and glorified. And we see, we started in verse 12. We're going to go back to verse 11 to get a little more background here. It says, all your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Now, a few translations translate that word harps, stringed instruments. So if you play guitar, just know that Satan was the first guitar player. Great news, right? Just kidding. I love guitar. Uh, no, and we're going to see why Satan played guitar. We are not, like, we're not getting rid of the guitars at City Church. Don't worry. We're not going, like, no music. Uh, I promise you're going to understand where we're going with this. It's very important. We're going to come back to this later on. But just remember that, that Satan had stringed instruments. He had harps. He had guitars. So let me explain something else about this in Isaiah 14. Uh, this prophecy, this statement that's, that's coming through the mouth of Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, was actually given to the king of Babylon. He was actually talking to the king of Babylon, but we know that he's not addressing the king. He's addressing Lucifer. And this may seem really unusual and really uncommon. Why would it operate this way? But this is not the only time we see this in Scripture. This is not completely rare. There's one example that probably most of us in here would be familiar with. Jesus is is walking, and someone says something to him, and Jesus stops, and he looks at that person, and he speaks to the person, but he's really speaking to the the spirit behind the person. Some of you already know where I'm going with this, but he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? So he's speaking to Peter. He's looking at Peter. He's talking to Peter, but he's really talking to the spirit behind what Peter was operating in at that moment. And so this is what's happening in Isaiah. Isaiah is speaking to the king of Babylon, but he's really speaking to the spirit behind the king. It's important to understand that. Here's why it's important, because when we turn to Ezekiel 28, go ahead and flip over there, we find a prophecy here given to the king of Tyre. Now, now Tyre was a city-state just north of Israel in what is now Syria. And Tyre was related to another city-state called Sidon. Uh, And these were very rebellious states uh, against God. These places hated God all down through history. And here in Ezekiel 28, we find the prophecy given to this king. But it's very clear, very simple to see that he's not talking to the king. He's talking to the spirit behind the king. He's talking again to Lucifer. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 11. says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you are the model of perfection. It's a pretty amazing thing to say to a man, right? To say to the king, he wasn't talking to the king, he was talking to Lucifer. He says, you are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, before I go on, let me say this. Either he's not actually talking to a man or the king of Tyre put Ryan Gosling to shame, right? He said, you are perfect in beauty. Like, you are the greatest creation of all time. Girls, I know, don't, don't play. You know that you like Ryan Gosling. I get it. It's okay. Uh, I see my, my wife's eyes light up when his name comes up before. It's all right. Uh, it's all good. He's a pretty dude. It's okay. 
It's okay. Uh, so he was created perfect in beauty. Verse 13 says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Was the king of Tyre in Eden? No. Only four beings were in Eden. God was in Eden. Adam, Eve, and who was the fourth? Satan. Lucifer was in Eden. And there in Eden was a tree called the tree of life. And this was a tree that if you ate of its fruit, it would give you everlasting life. And so when Adam and Eve ate of the, tree of the, or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God had to cast them out of the Garden of Eden. In fact, he kicked them out of the garden and he set up angels with flaming swords at the boundaries of the garden to make sure that they could never re-enter. It's important to understand, this is why he did this, Genesis 3.22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now when we read this, this sounds like the judgment of God. You screwed up, you messed up, you sinned, you fell, now you're going to miss out. Now you're not going to get this. But this isn't God's judgment. This is God's grace. You see, Adam and Eve were in a fallen state. They had sinned. They were in a fallen, unredeemed state. And it wasn't until they were in this fallen, unredeemed state that they were kicked out and banned from the tree of life. But once they were fallen and unredeemed, God knew if they ate of the tree in the unredeemed state, they were going to live forever and in the fallen state. They were going to live forever separated from God. So he loved them enough to protect them because he knew he had a plan to redeem them. He knew he had a plan to send his son to die for them, to, to restore them to him. But he had to get them out of the garden to keep them from the tree of life. Now, here's what's amazing about the tree of life. Revelation 2.7 says that the tree of life is in heaven. It says that you and I get to eat from it. See, God wants you to eat from the tree of life. He just wants you to eat from the tree in a redeemed state, not in a fallen state so that you can live forever. It's pretty incredible when you begin to connect the dots. So God drives them out. The king of Tyre was not in Eden. Adam and Eve were in Eden, as was Lucifer. So we see he's speaking to Lucifer. Continuing in verse 13, he says, Every precious stone adorned you. This is why he was perfect in beauty. He was covered in every precious stone. And then it lists them off. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. It says, Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. What are these settings and mountings? What is it talking about? Well, this is the NIV, the 1984 NIV that, that I typically read from. If we go to the New King James or the King James or even the New American Standard in, in the footnotes, here's what we'll find. And I'll, I'll read it to you from the New King James. It says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So timbrels and pipes are instruments. Just remember that. We're going to come back and connect the dots on all these instruments. Verse 14, you were anointed as a guardian cherub. It's a cherub. It's an angel. Where's an angel live? Heaven. Talking about Lucifer. So he was a guardian cherub. He was, he was a cherub who was in authority. He was a cherub who was one who covered. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. It says, for so I ordained you, you were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mounts of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. So this is the second prophecy that we see to a man, but really speaking, 
to the spirit behind the man. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this. This is not just interesting stuff. Hopefully you're interested anyway. But, but there's some real deep truths in these passages that we need to understand. Let's go back to the end of verse 13. It says that the workmanship of your timbrels, this is the New King James, and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. What's a timbrel? Well, this word is also translated sometimes as tambourine. It's a percussion instrument. It's an instrument that makes noise uh, when something strikes it, when something shakes it, when something hits it. What's a pipe? Well, this word is also often translated as flute. So it's a wind instrument. It's an instrument that makes noise when wind passes through it and passes over it. Now remember, Isaiah 14 says that the sound of the harp, the sound of the stringed instruments, uh, that Lucifer had this sound. Now, in Ezekiel, it says that he was created with timbrels and pipes, with, with percussion instruments, stringed instruments, and now we see wind instruments as well. So Lucifer was created with, and, and by the way, that's every kind of instrument. Every instrument that there is is either a wind instrument, a stringed instrument, or a percussion instrument. And so Lucifer was created with these instruments in his being. Why? Very simple. He was the worship leader in heaven. He was created to bring music, to bring worship to God. That's who he was. Now, there's three archangels that we see in heaven, three ruling angels that that have factions, divisions of the angels. Lucifer was one of them. He ruled over worship. Another one is Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel, we see every time that he appears, he's bringing, proclaiming the word of the Lord. He shows up to Elizabeth to proclaim, you're going to have a child. He shows up to Mary to proclaim the word of the Lord. So, so he's the archangel of the word. And then there's Michael. Daniel chapter 10, we see Michael show up, and he's on his way to answer Daniel's prayer. But he's actually prevented or, or withheld because of a, a demon spirit, a demonic spirit that's holding him back, that he has to fight his way through. And so the answer to the prayer is delayed. But it happens, which, by the way, sometimes if you're waiting on an answer to prayer, it's because there's some spiritual warfare going on. It doesn't mean God doesn't care. It doesn't mean God doesn't heard you. It means you just need to keep praying that that spiritual warfare will come out, that, that the angel will be able to push through. So keep having faith. Keep trusting God. Uh, but Michael is the archangel of, of prayer, of spiritual warfare. Uh, and Lucifer, the archangel of worship, or he was, past tense, the archangel of worship. Now, side note here, anytime we get together in service, we're going to see these three things. And evidence. We're going to see worship, we're going to see the word, and we're going to see prayer. In your quiet time, in your personal devotional life with God, there needs to be worship, there needs to be the word of God, and there needs to be prayer. These are the three archangels, the three divisions that God has ordained for us to relate with him, for us to connect with him. So Lucifer ruled, past tense over worship. Then verse 16, it says this, through your widespread trade, you are filled with violence and you sinned. Now, what's this word trade mean? What's, what's it talking about here? And the King James is actually translated as merchandising. But if you go back to the Hebrew, uh, the essence of it is this. So let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that Cody owns Best Buy. All right? Cody, his, Cody's last name is Best Buy. It's Cody Best Buy. But he's, he likes to go by Scott so that people don't harass him all the time. So, uh, so Cody hires me to, to come and work at Best Buy. So I'm a cashier at Best Buy. And Jimmy decides to come in and, and buy a flat screen TV. So Jimmy comes in. He's got three crisp $100 bills. He walks around. He finds a flat screen for Ashton. You know what? We're going to get this one. We're going to put it in our kid's room. Taking the chance. Taking the risk. We're going all in. So, so they pick out the, the flat screen TV. He gives me the $300 bills. I take the $100 bills. I put two of them in the register to go to Mr. Best Buy, and I put one of them in my pocket and hold on to it for myself. 
That's merchandising. That's the abundance of trade. It's that something that was designed to pass through you to someone else, that you withheld some of it for yourself. So what is this saying about Lucifer? He was leading worship, and worship was coming directed to him. It was supposed to pass through him to the Father, and he started holding some of it back for him. And God had to send him out of heaven. In fact, it was sudden. It was immediate. It says that Jesus said that I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning from the sky. This was an immediate thing. Why? Because God was angry that someone else would be worshipped? No. Because someone was receiving worship who wasn't worthy. And everything in heaven has to operate the way it's supposed to. has to happen ideally. And so when he began to receive worship unworthily, there was no choice but for him to have to leave and be cast down. From heaven. Satan stole something that didn't belong to him. His greatest desire has always been to be worshipped, to take worship onto himself, to be lifted up. So that's point one. The last two points will go a lot faster. Second question, what is Satan's desire? What's his greatest desire right now? What is his desire? Matthew 4 says, again, the devil took him, talking about Jesus, to a very high mountain. See the same theme? begin to play out. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. While Satan's tempting Jesus, trying to get Jesus to sin, what's he trying to get him to do? To worship him. You don't think Satan's greatest desire is to get worshiped? He went all the way to the top. He went after the son of God in his weakest moment. Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. He said, if there's ever a time I'm going to get him to screw up, it's right now. I'm going after him. I'm going for his worship. Bow down and worship me. His desire is to be worshiped to the very top. To the God of the world. He wants worship from him. But notice that he didn't just say, I want you to worship me. What else did he say? I want you to bow down and worship me. Why? Because love has to be expressed. Worship has to be expressed. So you can't just have a worshipful heart. The Bible says from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Love is always expressed. It has to be communicated. If you love God, if you love the Lord, you will express your worship to him. If you want to worship Satan, you will express your worship to him as well. It's not just something in your heart. It must be expressed. When I was in Bible college, I went to a school called Tekoa Falls College in northeast Georgia. And I, in high school, my family started going to a very charismatic church, just this very, very expressive church. I mean, much more even than city church. People were dancing in the halls and the aisles, and it, it, was, it was a pretty wild church. And at this point in time, man, I, I loved that. I thought it was great. I, I was all about it. And so I went to Bible college, and I went to school with a lot of people who were not as expressive as I was. And so we started, we had chapel services. And I remember there were a couple guys on my hall particularly who in chapel service, they would just stand there. We'd be worshiping God. And I, you know, I was respectful. I wasn't going to do stuff that was against the style of worship that, that was there. Uh, but I mean, to whatever the maximum amount you could worship was, I was doing that. I was at the upper limits of what was acceptable. So I'm raising my hands, and I'm singing out, and people are hearing my voice, and I'm sorry, but, man, I got to worship him. I don't care how bad I sound. And, I, and, and I'm just giving him my all. And I remember these guys who would just stand there, just kind of have their hands folded, just kind of look around, never sing, never enter in, never worship. And I, I remember hanging out with them and knowing that, man, these guys— seem like they really care about God. They seem like they really have a relationship with him. But why, why can't you guys worship? And I was in college. I was idealistic. I didn't care to just confront somebody and be like, what's up? What's going on? So, 
remember them telling me, you know, man, it's, it's just not really my personality. It's just not really my thing, man. That's cool for you. I don't have a problem with you doing it, but that's, that's just not me. And I was like, all right, cool. And then one Sunday, we're hanging out, and we watched an Atlanta Falcons game. And these guys are Falcons fans. And the Falcons weren't even good. And a miracle happened. All of a sudden, their personality changed. All of a sudden, they could shout. All of a sudden, they could dance. All of a sudden, they could get excited. All of a sudden, they could get passionate. It's like, no, man, it's not, it's not your personality. You're not willing to express your love to God. See, love has to be expressed. And yes, some people are going to express it in different ways, but it's got to be expressed. I mean, I'm going to speak just for a moment to the men in this room. If you're a man here, you're a young man, you're going to be a man one day. I mean, hear my voice on this. Let your kids see you worship. One of the greatest things you could ever do for your kids is let them see you enter into the presence of God. Is let them see you express your love for God. One of the deepest truths you could ever show them is this is what I was created for. This is what I care about. He's worthy of my worship. I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody sees. It's one of the best things my dad did for me. Man, my dad has many flaws and many weaknesses, but I can't ever remember a time that my dad did not worship. And my dad was a big dude. He was a Marine. He was a tough guy, but he was not afraid to lift his hands. He was not afraid to sing out to his Lord. And it wasn't just at church. It wasn't just in front of others. He did it at home. Man, he got a guitar out, and he couldn't sing to save his life, but he didn't care. He's going to worship his God. He was going to worship his maker. And I can still hear my dad's voice in my head, but you know what? I'm glad that I can hear that voice. I'm glad that my dad loved his God enough to show it in front of me so that I could learn at a very, very young age to worship. And man, if you've not taken that step, fathers, men, I encourage you, begin to be a worshiper. Let people see it, especially your kids. Uh, when I was doing my internship in Tulsa, uh, I had this amazing opportunity to be the missions intern, and I got to help lead a couple of mission trips, and the guy who is my boss, the, the person who was directly above me, his name was Brother Randy, and Brother Randy was, he was from Iowa, he was a farmer, he grew up as a farmer, he had a mullet, uh, this, was, this was a dude, alright, like if he wasn't a, a saved, I'm sure he would have had like dip in his back pocket all the time, like he was a redneck, let's just say, say what it was, uh, and, and he was intimidating, he was awesome, I loved him, but he was a scary, scary dude, and I, I remember going on these two mission trips with them, and they were kind of back-to-back. They were two weeks, and then we had, like, three days in between, and then we went on another two-week trip. And by, like, week three, uh, and by the second week of the second trip, uh, he was dying to get home to his wife. And I can remember a couple times overhearing him on the phone with his wife, and this tough dude, I miss you. I love you. I need you. Like, and it's like, dude, stop. Gross. I don't need to hear that. But you know what? Love is expressed, and he loved his wife, and he didn't care if I thought he was a little lame for the way that he talked to her because he knew she was the priority to him, and he expressed his love. And that's the same way it needs to be with our worship. Who doesn't want you to express your love? Satan. His greatest desire right now, I believe, is to keep you from worshiping God. That's why every time there's a worship service, every time there's a worship song on, there's a voice in your head telling you, you shouldn't enter into this because you did this, because you got into this, because you have this weakness, because you have this sin. You shouldn't lift your hands because what's that person next to you going to think? You're going to be a hypocrite. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. That voice in your head that starts attacking every time music starts playing and worship starts going up, that's the enemy doing everything he can to keep you from worshiping.
So we've seen, well, what is his greatest desire? What is his greatest desire? Number three, what will his greatest desire be? The great thing about being a Christian is that we have the end of the book. We know the end of the story. Revelation, we're going to spend a little time here. 13 verse 4 says, men worshiped the dragon. Chapter 12 verse 9 tells us the dragon is Satan, in case you're not sure. Men worshiped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. That's the Antichrist. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? In the end times, people are singing to Satan. They are worshiping Satan. There is a day coming where he will be worshiped on earth, where the dragon, Satan himself, will be worshiped as well as his Antichrist. He's going to get his worship. He's going to get his desire met. And they're asking this question, who is like him? Who can make war against him? It goes on to tell us in chapter 17, verse 13, they have one promise and will give their power, or one purpose, excuse me, and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb, which Jesus, will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, his chosen and faithful followers. You're going to be with him in victory in the last days. Now, here's how I see this going down, that, that Jesus is up in heaven He's on the throne next to the Father. He's interceding and praying for us. That's what he does in heaven. That's his his role and responsibility right now is to defend you against the accusations of the enemy. See, he's up there in heaven, and all of a sudden something kind of reaches his ear. And he's, Gabriel, what did they just say? He turns to Gabriel, and Gabriel's been waiting for this day, and he's like, here's what they said, Lord. They said that they, who is like the beast and who can make war with him? Like Gabriel's so excited. He's been waiting for this day. Jesus says, they want to know who can make war with him. Give me my sword. And he brings his sword. And he calls his chosen, his faithful followers. And he goes to war. And he defeats the enemy. He defeats him. Revelation 19.11 tells us how this goes down. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is who is able to make war with the beast. That is who is able to bring victory in whatever situation you're going through in your life. That is who is worthy of your worship, Jesus Christ. Remember it said that Lucifer was covered with every precious stone. You know what precious stones do? They reflect light. See, Lucifer was designed with precious stones in his being to reflect the light of the glory of God. Here's what's so amazing. He was covered with all these stones. When you read Revelation 21, it tells us that the new Jerusalem, which is the bride prepared for the groom, descends from heaven, and it's covered and adorned with every single one of those same jewels that Lucifer was adorned with. You see, we're the bride of Christ. We are the ones who are going to wear those same jewels, that same adornment that Lucifer once had. He was decorated, 
or the, the, excuse me, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, is decorated with every precious stone. Lucifer was created with wind, string, and percussion instruments. He was created with those instruments in his being. Here's what's amazing. You know that you're created with strings? You know what we call them? Vocal cords in your throat. You know how they make noise? Wind passes over them. And we got percussion instruments. Maybe you need to hit that a little harder, wake some people up. Percussion instruments. You see, the same way that Lucifer was designed with instruments in him to worship God, you're designed the same way. You were given that same imprint to worship him. He was decorated with precious stones. Our future is to have those same stones to reflect the light of the glory of God. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if one day God is on earth, that he has just recently formed. He's come into the chaos, into the void, and spoken into it and begun to create. And here it gets to day six. And Lucifer's lurking on earth, and and he sees God, and he says, who is going to praise you now? These animals, these plants, this creation you've made, who's going to worship you now? Who's going to lead worship for you? Who's going to be your worship leader? And God looks over at him, and he bends down. He grabs a handful of dirt. And he forms the dirt. (laughs) He blows into the dirt. And he says, that's my worship leader. That's the one who's going to praise me. That's the one who I've created to replace you, to take your place. You see, in Scripture, there's no record of a new archangel of worship. Every time in scripture where someone who is given a role by God is taken out of that role, they're always replaced. Saul is removed from being king of Israel. David becomes the new king. Judas is removed from being the 12th disciple. They vote and they they take up lots actually to replace him with a new disciple. There's always a new person chosen except with the archangel of worship. God had a better plan. He had a different plan. And he breathed into that dirt, into that dirt. But there was a problem. Lucifer started speaking to that dirt and that dirt chose to follow the enemy chose to follow Satan and so now what is God to do well he still had a plan you know what he did God became dirt he came in the same form that he had created and he came to die to restore his creation to the rightful place to restore you and I to relationship with him that we could fulfill the destiny he had created us for to be his worship leaders pretty amazing isn't it but you know what else it says it says if we don't worship him that the very rocks will cry out See, we have an opportunity. We've been given an incredible choice to follow in our destiny. But if we don't, somebody else will. God's going to be worshipped. Creation is going to lift him up. The question is, are you? Are you going to worship him? We're going to wrap up our service today a little bit differently. Rather than going into a fresh start right now, I want to just spend some time in worship. Hopefully we've built your faith to worship. I don't know what your worship looks like. I don't know if you normally sing, but don't raise your hands. I'd encourage you to raise your hands. I don't know if you normally stand there and maybe you clap, but you don't sing. I'd encourage you to lift your voice. I don't know if maybe you normally lift your hands. Maybe you need to bow down. I don't know what your worship looks like, but I think it's time to take it to another level because he's worthy because here's the truth. You 
been redeemed from eternal hell into eternal heaven. If we can cheer when a pig crosses a chalk line into an end zone, we can cheer over the fact that we get to spend eternity with the God who created us. We can worship him. Amen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up. And if you've got a heart to worship, maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe you know what to do. I want to invite you just to come down front that we could worship together as we wrap up this service. We're going to spend 10, 15 minutes doing this. And I encourage you just to, to seek him. Block everybody else. Worship him. Give him the glory you were created to give him. Let's praise him. Go ahead, guys.